Hey, before we jump into the podcast, just want to give a quick reminder, if you're new here to the Holistic Nootropics podcast, to please just take a quick second and subscribe to the podcast. It takes literally a second to do. Just hit the subscribe button right there in your podcast player. Also, if you want to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you like to actually watch the podcast, you can actually do that over on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com, search Holistic Nootropics, You'll see our page pop up. Subscribe to that. Hit the little bell icon so you can get notified every single time new videos drop because we don't just do podcasts over there. We do product reviews. We do all kinds of nootropic and biohacking and holistic health topical videos. So go on over, check us out on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. And for all things nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking related, go on over to holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner. And today on the podcast, I have Dr. David Rabin. Dr. David is an MD, PhD, a neuroscientist, a board-certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur, and inventor who's been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He is the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. Dr. Rabin is the medical director of the Apollo Clinic. Dr. Rabin, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. It's good to be here with you. I'm excited because uh, I am personally a user of the Apollo Neuroscience uh, wearable. I love it. I tell everyone I know about it. I've I've actually pushed it on quite a few people. Um, and, you know, they've definitely seen results. I'm seeing results in my Aura Ring data specifically. So I know it works. Um, and I would love to know your story. How did you go down this road of, you know, becoming uh, a, a, a doctor, a neuroscientist? What drew you to this field and ultimately become uh, the entrepreneur you are today? So I think what originally, and thank you again, by the way, for having me. Uh, and thank you to everybody who's tuning in. I, I think, uh, you know, what really drove me into this field was, Growing up, originally as a young child, I just had very vivid dreams and I was always interested in what those meant, why I was having them, why they seemed so real to me. And I'm talking, you know, between the ages of, you know, as long ago as I can remember. So between like, you know, from starting at as young as two years old, all the way through, you know, 10 or 11 years old, I used to have very, very intense dreams, some of which were good, some of which were bad and some of which were neutral. They didn't really seem to have any positive or negative, um, but they seemed very real nonetheless. And I would find myself referencing things that happened in my dreams, which a lot of people do in their real life and recognizing that when no one else knew what I was talking about, that this did not happen in real life, right? It happened in a dream. So I started asking people when I was a kid, you know, what does this mean? Why am I having these experiences that, and what is, what are dreams? And, you know, I think a lot of like, like a lot of adults at the time, my parents tried to do the best they could and, you know, didn't want me to be afraid of nightmares or to, you know, really be worried about falling asleep. So they're just like, Oh, don't worry about that stuff. It's not real. You know, it's not part of, of real life. And 
that's, that was okay as a satisfactory explanation for a little while, but after, you know, years of this passing by still having these recurrent dreams, I realized that it was absolutely not the only explanation. And, you know, it was very clear that there was something else to consciousness, right? There's something else to experience. That's not just happening when we're awake. It's also happening when we're asleep. And when we're asleep, we have an opportunity to tap into a different part of our consciousness. And, you know, over the years, I started reading about Carl Jung's work, who's one of the most famous psychoanalysts uh, who studied dreams, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud and, and many others in this field who studied this stuff. And I was fascinated by it. But unfortunately, over the last, I don't know, you know, up until the last 10 years, I guess I should say, it's been very, very difficult to study this stuff. And a lot of the people I worked with and my mentors, you know, and I should say it's critical to have good mentors, whether they're your family members or people you just find in the, in the world to who know more than you about something, help teach you. And just started talking to these people and saying, you know, I really want to study this stuff. I'm fascinated by consciousness. I'm fascinated by dreams, how we make meaning from the world and all that. And they said, well, you know, you, if you're really interested in this, why don't you study something like how we get meaning from stressful events, right? How do we understand stress, what stress means, how do we approach it? And why does, do some of us get sick from too much stress and others actually thrive under stress and become stronger and better uh, versions of ourselves? And what's the difference between those people? And ultimately I studied that in uh, cells, in uh, models of dementia in humans um, and aging blindness disorders in humans. And then uh, after studying that for about six or seven years at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and Albany Medical College, I realized that while this was fa fascinating, I really wanted to study the entire person. I wanted to work with the whole person. And so that ended up leading me into uh, psychiatry and really starting to look at and ask the hard questions, you know, of why are people not getting better, right? With the treatments that we have available. If we, if we, if we're told as psychiatrists to treat people with mental illness who have depression or, or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which ultimately became my specialties, you know, we're told to treat these people with the following, you know, different medications. And those medications only have a 50% remission rate or response rate or less, meaning that more than 50% of people taking the gold standard recommended course of treatment for depression and PTSD are not getting better over time and they're becoming dependent on the medicine, then are we actually, you know, hitting the target? Are we actually helping these people get to where they want to get? Or are we just making another population of people dependent on medicine? And it became very clear that, you know, we really need to ask harder questions about, are we getting this right? And so that led me down this path of clinical psychiatry research and neuroscience into really studying the origins of stress, which is, I've now been working on for probably closer to 15 years, and really trying to understand how does stress relate to mental and physical illness? And how can, what can we do to change our approach to stress to make sure that we have the best chances of living long, happy, fulfilled lives. And that's such an interesting approach to cognitive disorders is looking at stress itself. Because one thing I, I say a lot on this podcast, and I've noticed in my own research is that, you know, even in the supplement industry, it's, it's very much a pharmaceutical approach where it's like problem pill, problem pill, problem pill. And I feel like so many 
uh, you know, doctors, while they're well-intentioned, they're very short-sighted in the overall context of a person's problem. Like I know so many people who have, or, you know, say they have depression or have been diagnosed with anxiety. And it's, it's really as simple as saying, I have depression. I don't know why I can't figure it out. Doctor says, no problem. We got a pill for that. But obviously, and you probably know, there's so much more physiologically going on that creates that uh, impression of stress or anxiety in your mind. Right. And not just and not just physiologically going on. There's there's emotional stuff going on. There's mental thought related stuff going on based on the way that we were taught to see ourselves, the way we were taught to see the world, the way we were taught to see challenge itself. Right. If we see challenge as an opportunity for failure and failure is unacceptable, then we will reject challenge. Right. But if we see challenge as an opportunity for growth where failure is inevitable, then we will embrace challenge. Right. And, and the challenge is literally what, what allows us and, and forces us to grow. So a lot of it has to do with our mental outlook. And then there's also the physical biology that's going on as well, um, which is fascinating. And now we know a lot more about that than we did before. So it's it's really and there's the spiritual side of it. Right. People who are in spiritual challenges can also have issues with mental, emotional and physical health. And they're all tied together. And I think this is sort of where healthcare is moving that where we're seeing health as as overall health mental physical emotional and spiritual all as health rather than subdividing them into four different kinds of health that have to be treated individually they're really treated altogether um and so looking at what we know from stress is that stress makes symptoms of illness worse right there's almost no circumstance where somebody who is ill or chronically suffering from any symptoms of depression, PTSD, addiction disorders, even chronic pain, insomnia, um, anxiety disorders, and other physical illnesses, there are very few situations where those symptoms don't get worse under emotional or mental stress. So thinking about that is really interesting because it helps us to understand that perhaps there's something going on with the stress response system itself and that when you give somebody a medication, the medication's role is not to say to the to the patient, which is un the unfortunate mistake that it's not just doctors making it's, you know, in large part nurse practitioners and other people who have prescription power uh, or who, who are clinicians that have you know recommendation power, even not natural natural practitioners that will say, oh, take this supplement, take this medicine and then this will make you better. This will relieve your symptoms. Well that it may help optimize your system to help you relieve your own symptoms, but the medicine is not actually going to fix your problem. There are very few situations in medicine where the pill is actually the solution to the problem. Those situations are like infection, right? Where there's an antibiotic that you take to treat an infection and that antibiotic disrupts the bacteria or helps the body in some way actually fight the infection, ultimately, regardless of what it is, regardless of the pill, the body is doing the work. The, the, the uh, antibiotic is just helping to facilitate. And is it, this is the same with almost every other medicine that we use. It's at the healing ability of what of the healing process that comes from us. And the medicine is optimizing the system to be able to heal more effectively. If we look at the medicine as the answer, to, to that will that will be the cure to heal us, which is what many of us have been taught. 
then we externalize the role of the healer to the medicine rather than to internalize it to ourselves. So it's actually disempowering us to heal because we're taking that responsibility of healing and saying, this is on the medicine. The medicine's role is to heal me. So by changing the way, again, from the mental understanding perspective of how we look at medicine, it can actually dramatically shift our outcomes as how we see our own role in our own healing process. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like if I can maybe kind of rephrase so I can understand what you're saying, it's almost as if instead of saying, I have a problem, here's a medication, the medication's going to fix the problem. What the medication what should be doing is the medication should be a stimulus for the body to come together and rally the troops from all of these different parts, the physiological, the emotional, um, you know, the different organs that play into that um, problem that you have and say, we're going to handle this together. And the, the pill or the powder or the tincture or whatever it is, it's just the stimulus to get those things all on the same page. Exactly. And, and, and one common example that we see all the time is with ADD or ADHD, which is that a lot of these kids, sure, there is ADHD and ADD and it exists, but true ADD and ADHD probably, you know, is one of the most overdiagnosed and overprescribed for conditions nationwide, particularly in children now also becoming more common in adults. And in large part, what we find, what we see when we work with these people is that sure, a lot of people have attention issues, but is that because they've never actually been taught how to focus and concentrate over extended periods of time? Or is it because they actually have something wrong with them, right? That they need a medication for. And so when you give a child a medication like uh, Ritalin or Adderall, and you say, if you take this, you'll be able to focus. And I, the doctor or the parent, I'm recommending this to you as a, from a position of authority, you're basically saying, you know, from now on, you need this to achieve the same level of focus and concentration that the rest of us can do without medicine, which puts them into a mindset that there's something wrong with them. And ultimately what's wrong is they've never been taught how to focus or concentrate. You wouldn't expect somebody to know how to drive a car or a, or a plane if they had never been taught, right? You teach them and then you would give them extensive training and then they would learn how to do it. You wouldn't just say, take this pill and now you'll learn how to fly a plane, right? So the idea is that we have to change the way we're talking about medicine and the way it's used and the way it works from this will cure you to this is a teacher that can teach you through experience of how to concentrate and how to focus. When you take this medicine, this medicine will show you what it feels like to concentrate, Mm -hmm. right? It'll show you what it feels like to focus on something for an extended period of time that normally would totally bore you and lead you to go wander off to do something else. This medicine will show you what it feels like to do that. Apollo works in a similar way, right? By calming the body in a situation of stress, it reminds us that we are safe enough to be able to make decisions from a standpoint of strength rather than weakness and fear. And then all of a sudden we were retraining our brains to be able to focus and be able to relax or sleep at times where we would otherwise be perceiving threat from our environment. And it shows us that we can do it through what's called experiential learning. And then all of a sudden we know that we can do it because we've seen ourselves do it. And that starts a positive feedback loop over time, which retrains the brain. Yeah, I love that. I love that way of putting it. And especially when it comes to kids, man, I have to say learning how to deal with adversity as a child is the, I really think is one of the number one things you have to learn. It's great to understand 
this is what it's like to focus, but then to be, or this is what it's like to succeed. Like we all have to have that. We all have to be winners. We all have to learn that we can win and we can achieve that and we can focus and we can concentrate. Um, but kids are afraid to fail and the parents, and it's not even, maybe they consciously afraid to fail. They just don't, they're, they don't want that feeling of failure and the parents don't want that feeling of failure. So, I grew up in the generation, maybe the first generation, one of the first generations of kids using Ritalin, you know, uh, with uh, attention deficit disorder. And back then it was just attention deficit disorder. It was not attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That was like a whole other thing. Right. My mom said I was hyperactive. She never said you need a medication for it. It was just me being a kid and being kind of crazy and probably right. a little bit too much sugar. But these kids now, or I shouldn't say now, but they're taking the medication because now they're being taught medication is how you focus and then they grow up and now it's always going to be a medication is how you do X. And I really believe like all of the adults now that are in my age group who have real bad substance abuse problems and addictions or who are recovering from that were kids who were introduced to that model of getting the medication early to do the thing. Yeah. I think, I think there's no doubt that that is a contributor. And, and, you know, I was talking to some folks about this the other day, you know, I think it's, it's hard to say which, if there's any one medicine that, or one practice that resulted in people becoming, having this mindset of, I can just take this pill and feel better, or I can just, you know, have this instant gratification thing that I can just take or do this and it, from the outside take this thing, put it in my body and I'll feel better. But I, but it's, I think it's everything all at once, right? It's everything from being told that a pill can do that for you rather than being told that this pill can help you learn a skill that you're able to do on your own, but the pill is a way to help you learn, right. Versus something you rely on. And, and I think that that extends out into other things, right. It extends out into the instant reward and gratification we feel from earning money, from playing video games, from getting affection from other human beings, right. In our, in our community, from getting acceptance by our community, right? Failure in our communities in, a, in large part is unacceptable, right? I think this is a big, this is a huge problem for not just kids, but for everyone mm -hmm. that failure is not something to reject. We don't necessarily want to sign up on the list to fail, you know, but we do want to make sure that failure is acceptable and because it's inevitable, right? If you take like, it's like death. If you look at death as something that is unacceptable, but it is also inevitable, meaning that it's going to happen to all of us, no matter what, then you're basically setting your, you're like teeing yourself up for a lifetime of anxiety, thinking about fearing death, this thing that you're not supposed to want, not supposed to have that's thought of as bad for by all, everyone around you and your peers and mentors, but it's also going to happen to all of us, no matter what. Right. So it's about understanding that failure and overcome and, and facing challenge is never going to go away. Stress itself is never going to go away. These things are inevitable. We can't make them go away. All we can do is train ourselves to be able to overcome them better because our strength as human beings is not finding stability. Stability doesn't actually exist. It's about finding our ability to adapt and training our ability to adapt to whatever comes our way. The better we get at adapting, the better we get at being able to make ourselves feel like the stressors or the little things that come up on a day-to-day -day basis are really not that big a deal. And the better we get at helping ourselves recover and feel more close to the holist version of ourselves that we can be. 
Yeah. And oddly enough, uh, I've heard uh, Dr. Andrew uh, Huberman talk about learning. And he said one of the biggest parts about learning is the failure part. In fact, it is the failure part where your brain starts to begin to produce the BDNF and grow neural growth factor. And that's where you start to build the neural networks is through the failure. So if you aren't failing or if you are avoiding failure or if you can't handle the failure, you just quit every time you try something new, you're really missing out on the most important part of the learning and growing process. Yeah, I would, I would generally agree with that. I think in addition to that, I, I wouldn't say we learn only when we fail, sure. but, but yes, to that point, you are correct in that we, we learn by doing new things and by doing new things, which generally are challenging because they're new to us, at least challenging a little bit, then that is the condition under which we force ourselves to build new neurons, new neural connections, to form new synapses, to actually be able to change our, change our minds, right. And change the way our brains work, ideally for the better. Um, that neuroplastic response that Andrew Huberman talks about with, uh, BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor for those who don't know that facilitates learning and the formation of new, uh, synapses and neural connections is induced by anything that in, that is a, a newness in our lives. So newness can be facing failure, uh, which we haven't faced before, or it can be just doing something that we haven't done before with the opportunity to fail and accepting that that's okay. Right. It doesn't have to be that you have to fail to learn. Of course, failure is one of the best ways we do learn from our mistakes, but you can also fail and not learn from your mistakes if you choose to ignore what the learning moments are. Right. So it's really about challenging ourselves with newness, with new experiences that forces us to think about ourselves and question ourselves and the way we think about the world in new ways that then gives us the opportunity for failure. And when that opportunity for failure is present and that newness is present at the same time in a safe environment, right? That is what I think is really setting up the, the fundamental uh, foundation for really powerful learning experiences that result in making us stronger over time. Absolutely. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to talk to you about uh, trauma and stress um, because I've been really into the idea of trauma, um, not to like come at it from like a perverted perspective, like, oh, I'm really digging trauma, you know, but like thinking about the role, the, 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 the profound role that trauma plays in people's lives, especially when it comes to stress, my own, uh, you know, kind of awakening to this was reading the book, the body keeps the score and hearing so many of these stories. And I just, they're, they're all stories that are, were so unique and so incredible of people who have dealt with such severe trauma. And you start to realize these people are just around us all the time who have dealt with really severe things. And it's like, sometimes you hear these stories on the news, you hear them in the newspaper and you're like, oh my God, these poor people. And then you forget about it. And then you have to realize like, oh, that person who got kidnapped, you know, and was held hostage or whatever, they're still living. They're still like living their life and they have to live with that experience. And, you know, people have anything from, you know, that severe to just, you know, like little traumas that happen, like their parents didn't get them the right flavor ice cream they wanted when they were five and they threw a temper tantrum outside the Baskin Robbins. And somehow that creates uh, a little bit of trauma. And 
as we grow up now, that trauma plays a role in our stress response to things and people carry that stress response and it genuinely affects them. Um, so I'd love for you to maybe kind of go off a little bit on, on how these sorts of traumas affect our lives and, and maybe something that can help set people on the right path. Not in, not obviously medical advice, but you know, things that you've seen that, that typically help these situations. Sure. Uh, so I think, just taking a step back, I think one thing that's you know worth mentioning is you know growing up Jewish in the Jewish community. I think it is very we're we're very intimately acquainted with trauma because there's been so much of it in the 20th century, in particular, um, that dramatically affected our families. That affected the way that we interrelate with non-Jew with non-Jewish people in the community, or even Jewish people within the community, or the way that our families might have opened up to, uh, you know, trusting other, trusting the government, trusting others in in and in and around us as we were growing up, um, because there was a lot of distrust that occurred in the 20th century that resulted in, you know, the deaths and and traumatization um, and persecution of millions and millions of Jewish people. And so I think for us growing up, at least most Jewish people that I know, it was pretty hard to ignore the impact of trauma on our, on not only our parents and our grandparents, but also that got passed down to us. And there was a certain amount of anxiety, a certain amount of uh, angstiness or neurosis or worry uh, that got gets passed down over time, which has now been shown in some, in a large extent by Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who directs the trauma department at Mount Sinai hospital in New York city, uh, that this content, this, these experiences, when somebody gets exposed to severe, uh, trauma or intense, meaningful, negative experiences over time, uh, if it's not resolved, actually affects the expression of stress response genes like cortisol and the way cortisol is received. And that actually gets passed down over generations to children, to our offspring, if it's not resolved. So this is really interesting, right? Because at first we used to think that, oh, the only effects of trauma are on me because I was traumatized. And then, or I had these difficult experiences that I had trouble overcoming that I call trauma looking into the past trauma is a reflection of experiences in the past, right? Not in the moment. It's about looking back. And so when we think about that, we, we used to think, Oh, I was traumatized. So I need to deal with my stuff and I am just going to be the way I am until I deal with it. And maybe that will impact my children or my friends and family. And maybe it won't. Um, but now we know without a doubt that if people don't, process and work through what happened to them, then we, the cycle continues on over generations, which is, is really interesting, but I think the important part, and that, and that's really good to know, because once we know that that's the case, then what we can also know, uh, from Rachel's work and the work of, uh, of other folks who come after her have shown that you can reverse the stress response genes that are changing with trauma. So when you experience one or multiple negative, meaningful events over time that we call trauma, then that are very oftentimes very intense, but intensity is subjective, right? Everybody's different that this is causing changes to our stress response, gene expression patterns in our bodies. And that if we allow that, the, the, the effects of the trauma to continue, we ignore it or shut it down or numb ourselves or distract ourselves to it and don't address it. We don't allow ourselves to grieve and process it. 
then it will continue. And it will continue on a mental and emotional level some, and also on a biological epigenetic level that affects our stress response in our bodies, down to our immunity, the way we fight illness, our metabolism, the way we heal, the way we deal with pain, the way we sleep, all of that stuff gets affected. Our reproduction, everything. It's not just one or the other. And when we process that trauma and work through it in psychotherapy with cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, or other kinds of talk therapy, um, and do what's called extinction practices, where you learn to retrain the brain to not perceive that situation as threatening or fearful, then those biological changes actually decrease or go away completely on the, on the, on the epigenetic code. And that correlates with the symptom improvement that people report. So there's a really interesting thing here now that, that we people used to, I think, be told you've been traumatized or you have a mental disorder, mental health disorder. That means you're sick for life. You require medication for life. This is never going to get better. And I think what, you know, the beauty of what's coming out of Mount Sinai and Rachel's work and the work of these others have come after her are that that's actually not the case at all. Right. So it's very promising to know and exciting to know that no matter how much tra trauma, negative, intense, meaningful events that you've personally had, no matter how much you feel you suffered and or people in your family have suffered, the cycle can end with you, right? This can stop now. And we know also that hurt people hurt people. If we don't deal with our own trauma, we will traumatize others. And that could be friends or family or loved ones or what have you. So it's critical that we recognize that not only do we have the ability to stop the cycle now, but we actually can make changes in our lives and we, that can shift our biology and the way that we feel. It's not just one or the other, and it can be long lasting over time, over potentially years or decades and will actually impact our children's biology, right? And that's a really, really powerful takeaway. This is changeable. We are not sick forever when we've been traumatized and we actually do have the ability to heal. Yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's, so, it's such an interesting thing that I feel like more and more people are now starting to understand, especially, you know, with some of these um, more popular, uh, you know, like research studies, like they're using the, um, the psychedelic therapy that's becoming very popular, uh, for, for combat veterans and former fighters, people who have dealt with more like physical trauma, but also emotional trauma. Uh, and I, and I believe that you work a little bit, or you've been studying, researching, uh, a lot of this psychedelic therapy for this specific thing. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, and, and Dr. Yehuda also works on this as well. Um, but I think that the, uh, and we work on this uh, research together in the psychedelic space. Uh, but I think the the simplest psychedelic medicines are a little bit complex to understand in the little time we have today. Sure. But the easiest way to understand it is that these medicines, psychedelic means to show the mind. So psyche means mind. Delos means to show. So when you think about what happens in our dreams, we're, we're getting our, our conscious mind that always has to be awake to protect us physically when we're in our normal waking day-to-day -day state goes to sleep. And then we get, we get exposed to all of this content that's stored in our subconscious mind or what's called beneath awareness mind, right? So we have our awareness, which is what we're thinking about right now. when we're listening to this this interview um, or 
and, or at, and at the same time, we have everything that is not in our awareness, right? The feeling of our clothes on our skin, the feeling of the chair beneath us, the temperature of the room, the rain or sun outside, whatever wind, whatever it might be. There's a million things happening around us that we're, that our bodies are aware of, but we are not consciously aware of. So when we go into a dream state, this is the most common psych psychedelic state where we have an opportunity to show ourselves our subconscious minds, right? Mm. And that's what psychedelic really means. You can access it with dreams. You can access it with meditation, deep breathing, yoga, movement meditation, biofeedback, float tanks, and Apollo, and with assistance from medications that bio biochemically change receptors in our, in our, or activate, I should say, receptor pathways in our brains that have now been shown to reliably induce these psychedelic states that show our, show us our subconscious minds, right? They gently reduce by making us feel safe and catalyzing our safety response when used properly, they help us to remember that we're safe enough to allow our ego or our conscious awareness mind to take a backseat, which allows us to then look down into our subconscious minds, the parts of ourselves that are always there, but are not necessarily deemed important for survival on a day-to-day -day basis or a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And it allows us to become aware of that so that we can bring it forth into our awareness and then process it, work on it while feeling safe, and then ideally integrate it into our whole sense of self, not a sense of self that's fractured into lots of different pieces by nature of what the people around us told us they liked about us or didn't like about us. Right. Yeah. And for me personally, the, the most, uh, the most psychedelic experience that I've had, I've done like psychedelics and plants and these things, but meditation, like really diving deep into meditation and specifically breathing exercises and calming the mind. It just blows my mind every time when I'm in a meditation and then I go, Oh, I can hear the Wi-Fi router. Oh, I can hear the, the door crack behind me, you know, and you start realizing there's all these things that are happening all the time, every day. And when you slow the mind down and then you start to feel like, Oh, there's a little tension in my back. Oh, there's a little tension in my, just the exercise of relax your face, relax your face. And you start to realize like, Oh, I just like spend all of my day with my tongue at the roof of my mouth or my forehead crinkled in a way. And it's creating all this tension throughout the rest of my body. And it's that process of when you slow the mind, then everything starts to loosen up. And then there's, like you said, all of these other things that are happening in the background, just simply by noticing your breath, observing the things around you. And, um, and it could all be done free of charge without any external substances. Right. Absolutely. But it is challenging to do on your own. Absolutely. And I, and I think this is part of the problem, right? Is that we were never taught, most of us at least, were not taught how to access these states of mind from a young age. You know, most of us had experiences probably similar to me where you might have, you know, people might have had a psychedelic states in dreams or they might have had uh, psychedelic states through meditation or breathing as children or through sports or yoga or stretching or whatever, but not been told what it was, not taught how to understand it. And then you know, we're left basically being like, okay, well, these aren't real. These aren't important. So I'm just going to ignore them. And that's absolutely not the case, right? Ultimately, we know now that when you teach kids how to do breath work, uh, how to just how to be aware of their breathing when they're young, how to concentrate on their breath, how to meditate, how to meditate, 
Um, any number of these, these techniques make it that much easier to do when you're an adult and to tap into those when you're an adult. But really what we're talking about, regardless of whether you're starting as a kid or whether you're starting as an adult, is to expand our awareness, right? When we perceive threat from our environment, our minds go into a sympathetic, our minds and bodies go into a sympathetic fight or flight stress response survival mode. And that stress response survival mode is critical if we're about to run out of air, water, food, shelter, or we're being chased by a predator. If we're not experiencing, or we're gonna, or we could be kicked out of our community, right? If we're going to lose any of those things, those five or six things, then we want our survival response to get. That's the doing part of our brains. But the meditation, the breath work, the processing, the healing part is the listening part of our brains, right? And our bodies. If we're always in the doing part, then we can't devote resources to listening, right? So when we think about what, our, what we wanna do, we wanna establish balance by practicing breath work. Breath work is balancing the doing part, that sympathetic fight or flight part and the parasympathetic receiving rest and digest recovery part of our nervous system that's activated by safety and bringing that to the forefront because when we're safe, all of a sudden we can divert resources, not only to listening to our environment, listening to our bodies, expanding our awareness, et cetera, and, and healing on a mental, emotional level. We can also naturally divert resources back to immunity, mm -hmm. reproduction, metabolism, and weight management, uh, sleep and energy recovery and restoration, right? All of these parts of our body creativity, right? All these parts that are deemed unnecessary in the moment of threat. Yeah. And I, and I see one thing I I've really gotten into too, since I've been in this holistic health space and, uh, you started to understand that, you know, how hormones work is the cortisol steel, the pregnenolone steel, the idea that when you're cranking cortisol, when you're cranking stress hormones, it's physically impossible for your body to make all of the other hormones you need. So like a lot of guys are short on testosterone. And so you look at their lifestyle and it's like the, the hard charger guy working 70 hours a week, you know, he's, uh, you know, running around drinking on, uh, you know, five days a week, maybe has like a, you know, a little drug issue, maybe has just, I mean, all kinds of stress going on. Where does this guy, uh, or you can even say the same thing for females who, you know, have a hard time getting pregnant. You know, they, they don't have a regular period skin's a mess. Everything's going on. Uh, it's simply because you've allowed and not to, not to, you know, demonize cortisol because it's absolutely 100% necessary. Like you said, you need it to survive, you know, you need it for a lot of things, but it's the chronic release and the chronic expression of stress hormones that really does a number physiologically on your regular hormone production, which of course is going to translate into mood and other physiological disorders. Right. And, and if we're, and, and, and it all comes down to this fundamental balance of safety and, and threat, which is real and perceived at the same time, right? So if we, but it's up to the only people, the only person who can remind us that we're safe is us. Other people can only do so by giving you a hug, right? When you're alone and you're, or you're, you're by yourself in a stressful situation, the only person who can remind you that you're not being chased by a lion in that moment is you. 
And, but that, again, that's, that requires some skill and some practice to remember to breathe in moments of stress, to remember to do self-touch on your chest or on your neck or on your ear, way on your hand, when you're in a stressful situation, all these kinds of things, playing soothing music, right? All these things can be really helpful because they all activate that stress that it, they, de they decrease the stress response activation and they increase the parasympathetic recovery activation by nature of reminding us that we're safe enough to feel the soothing feeling, which is how Apollo works as well, right? If you're safe enough to feel and pay attention to the vibrations of Apollo, the gentle soothing vibrations, just like a, someone holding your hand on a bad day, then you can, or the feeling of a deep breath, then you can't possibly be running from a lion in that moment. Our, our nervous system would absolutely not allow us to pay attention to our breath or to the feeling of a gentle vibration or soothing touch if we were running from a lion or in an immediate survival situation. However, thank goodness, most of us are not running from lions these days, right? We just have too many emails, too many responsibilities, too much traffic, too much news, right? Too much incoming stimuli. And that is still threatening to us perceptually, but it's not survival threat, right? So we have to remind our bodies constantly when we're facing the, the stressors of modernity that the current, our current lives, that this is not a survival threat. It's, if it's a survival threat, we want that system to engage and it will, and it, it absolutely will, but it's not going to engage to the extent we want it to, if we're not fully recovered. So for all those times where we're not in a survival situation, learning these techniques or using a tool like Apollo could be really helpful, especially for those who have never learned deep breathing or meditation or yoga or any of these strategies by just giving you something that helps to balance the nervous system, bring your parasympathetic up and your sympathetic down a little bit. So that they're more in balance so that when you want to be in flow and clear and focused, you can, when you want to socialize without worrying about what other people are thinking about you, you can, when I, you know, when you want to sleep without worrying about what you're going to have to do at work tomorrow, you can't. Right. And that's really what gives us the boost of recovery that breath work does and helps train us over time to be able to tap into that on our own. And I love that you use the word flow. That is, that is like one of my favorite things to, to really like shoot for, you know, it's not like the, the result of it. Of course I have goals. Of course I have, you know, my daily checklist and things I want to get done, but it all really depends on how, how much I can switch into that flow state because when you're there, everything is so seamless. And in fact, I do use the Apollo to help me. You know, I use the Apollo several times a day and I can tell you, yeah, you know, what's crazy. I actually wear it on my ankle. I feel like, um, you know, I'm on house arrest or something. Uh, I usually wear it on my ankle too. Most yeah. of the time. So I was never sure if I should wear it on my wrist and my ankle, but it seems to work well, um, on my ankle. And it's not one of those woo woo things. That's the thing. Like I really want people to understand. Uh, it's not a woo woo thing because I check my aura scores and I see that my heart rate variability is much higher when I wear the, uh, when I wear the Apollo, which means it's doing something to calm my nervous system and switch me to that parasympathetic. And like I said, when I'm in one of those days where it's like, I have a bunch of stuff to do. It's just a matter of me getting it together and getting in that state where time disappears and I can just dive into it. I strap on the Apollo and I let it fly and I'm able most times to get through it. So the Apollo is so interesting because it uses vibration and it uses like this gentle tapping. Can you explain how that works? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to mention that the results that you're seeing are not just in the, in the moment or over one night, because we've had now tracked this with, uh, over a thousand Apollo users who also have, uh, who are using wearables, consumer wearables. And we found that that improvement in HRV actually goes up over time with consistent use. Mm -hmm. So it's not just to say, Hey, I'm using this and I'm sleeping a little better over these few nights. In fact, even if you didn't notice a difference in the first few nights, if you use it over the course of weeks, you will notice a cumulative improvement in HRV and deep sleep and REM sleep over time, which is really, really interesting and a cumulative decrease in resting heart rate, which is one of our best signs of overall cardiovascular fitness. So the reason why Apollo does this is because Apollo works in the same exact way, neurologically speaking, as soothing touch. So touch is the oldest way, oldest in terms of millions of years of human evolution or animal evolution that is hardwired. It's activating a hardwired nervous system pathway that can communicate safety to our brains. So when the reason for that is because when ancient animals, humans or ancient primates were living together in the, in the jungle, in nature, when there were very primitive forms of shelter, like only caves and no real structure or anything like that, the way that, that they would communicate to each other, that they're safe, that especially young, young uh, offspring were safe is by mothers cuddling or, or, or uh, um, what's the word? It's like swaddling their young, right? And that touch from a mother to a, to a child, particularly in, in even in an, the most ancient mammals is extremely calming because the, the, the animal nervous system gets activated by that touch. It recognizes that touch is even whether it's a, in there, it's aware of it or not, it's, it's body and mind recognize that touch as safety. And that set releases a whole bunch of safety neurotransmitters that facilitate bonding and facilitate recovery. So that would be oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, uh, as well as things like endorphins, right. That's that stimulate reward, the same kinds of stuff that gets released when you exercise and get like a runner's high. Right. And, and also uh, endogenous opioids, which are our body's way of managing its own pain and endocannabinoids. So our body makes molecules that bind our cannabinoid receptors inside our own bodies, which are some of the most common receptors in the body that help to regulate our emotions and help us to feel fulfilled and calm and able to manage our metabolism more effectively and our immunity. All of these things are tied together and touch from all the literature that had been published was fairly certain that this was the pathway that was the oldest and most powerful way to activate this recovery system. So after study, and it requires no attention, right? You can be touched with while you're doing something else and not have to, to take your attention away from that thing you're doing. You, you can wear something that sends gentle touch vibrations to your body and still give your talk, still give, do your surgery, still, uh, you know, complete your mission or, or drive your car, whatever it is that you needed to do. And it doesn't require you to take your attention away from that thing. So ultimately studying that touch pathway led us to map out the entire pathway and understand exactly how touch goes, soothing touch goes from the skin to the brain and how that changes the body and how we think and feel. 
And then when we saw that that safety pathway was very, very well studied, we basically in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh designed the Apollo vibrations, which are sound waves or mute, or you know, the best way to think about it is it's music that's composed for your skin touch receptors instead of your ears that would basically reliably induce the same feeling of soothing touch that you get from somebody holding your hand or giving you a hug on a bad day. And when we tested many, many, many frequencies over time of sound, we found that there were very specific patterns that we could put together that could reliably boost you up and give you energy and focus and clarity and creativity, or that could help you calm down and fall asleep better or relax before bed better or calm down after a big workout or a stressful event. And then we tested them in the lab and they were very consistent. And then we refined them and made them better and then tested them in the real world with thousands of users in prototype form. And we got even, you know, more, more reliable results over time and learned a lot from those people. And then in 2020, after, you know, several clinical trials and thousands of users in the real world, we ended up uh, taking all that information and then releasing the commercial product in January of 2020. And now we're getting even a better hit rate currently in terms of responses from people. But um, it's, it's, it's very interesting like, that probably 90 to 95% of people can feel the vibrations of Apollo and get an almost identical response in their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. What other kinds of experiences do we have other than soothing touch that does that kind of, has that kind of effect with that kind of response rate, right? There's very few things that we experience in our lives that are that reliably common. That's yeah. And I never even thought of it like that in terms of the, the idea of the soothing touch. I, I, when I was researching the Apollo, I got really into the low frequency vibration, um, aspect of it, but this, the touch part that is just so fascinating because, you know, you, you go back to this idea of blue zones and everybody wants to make a big, a big deal about the diet of people in the blue zones. But when you actually dive into that, that story, it's actually the community and it's actually being around people. And, you know, I've heard people, uh, very intelligent people say that loneliness is the new smoking, you know, lone people are dying more of loneliness, even though we're more connected than ever, people are more lonely than ever. And even people who are in relationships and have people around them still have this thing that they they cannot feel fully connected to people. So to think that something as simple as touch can spike your HRV, can, can help your heart rate variability. And I've, again, seen it on my own, in my own experience, you obviously have the data of other users. Uh, you know, you can look at the reviews of this thing online and people are seeing very similar results that, wow. And it's not something you go, I used the Apollo yesterday and I feel amazing. It's one of those gradual things that you look back a month or two from when you first started using it, you could use the aura, you could use the whoop, or you could just go, Oh man, like, yeah, I do actually feel better now that I've been using this thing every day consistently for two, three months. And you start to see my digestion's better. My skin's improving. I'm not waking up with as much anxiety on and on and on with all of these conditions that start to slowly go away when you're using something like the Apollo. Yeah. It's just, it's just like, just like doing regular touch therapy or massage or getting a lot of hugs on a regular basis. It reminds the body that can enter that recovery state and then divert more resources to recovery. So some people, and there are a decent percentage of these people, um, in our experience, most of them are children or people with PTSD or a severe, uh, chronic 
illness that where they haven't felt safe in sometimes decades, these people will often respond very, very quickly to Apollo, where they'll start to feel like within a few nights uh, of using it, that their sleep is noticeably better. They're uh, feeling noticeably more energy during the day. And then they'll start drinking less coffee or drinking less alcohol or just using less stimulants and sedatives on a regular basis because they feel more in control of their energy and how they feel, their mood. Um, and that is also something that happens for a lot of people. But I think it's important, you know, what you said, which is that while some people do get a relatively quick response and you can, if you use Apollo, you know, as we recommend on our, on our website, which you can find at how to get the most out of Apollo um, in our blog post, which is probably the most helpful place to go, uh, the, the effects more interestingly are cumulative. So even if you notice or don't notice an effect right away, the body is being trained to respond better to stress and it's being trained to be more resilient. And I think what's really fascinating that you'll, you'll find, you'll find very exciting is that soothing touch is expected to induce similar regular soothing touch by nature. How it works in the body is expected to induce similar responses to, uh, in the body over time that exercise and meditation do when they're practiced regularly. And now that we follow people with using Apollo over the course of a year, what we've actually seen is that when people start using Apollo regularly on the order of about three or more hours a day, having it vibrating on their bodies and about five or more days a week, we start to see that these people are getting within an eight week time frame, they're getting comparable benefits to what you would get from adopting a new meditation practice or exercise routine for 30 minutes a day for that same amount of time. Because all of these techniques are training the autonomic nervous system to be in balance. They're training us for recovery as much as they're training us for peak performance. You can't have one and not the other. So we must, if we wanna perform at a high level, if we want to have be able to access flow states whenever we want, which is really just being present and mindful, these states are activated by safety techniques. So we have to practice the safety techniques, whether it's with Apollo, whether it's with gratitude practice or self-compassion, self-love practices, or whether it's with breath work or yoga or meditation or mindfulness or any of these other things we've talked about, we have to train ourselves with these techniques so that we can optimize our ability to enter into these flow and peak recovery states as often as possible. And that will make sure that when stress comes, when challenge comes, we're at our peak or closer to our peak to be able to adapt and cope with whatever comes our way. And is there a, I know you said you have a, uh, you know, information on your website about the optimal way to use it. Um, is there a kind of sequence that you think is preferable as you use it throughout the day? Cause I know there's several different settings and you have like, uh, like the wake up and energy, you probably use that in the morning. Um, you know, you have ones that are like relax and meditate. You have, uh, you know, ones that are like, um, uh, you know, the, the fall asleep and, and that sort of thing. Um, but is it possible to use those settings at like different times of the day? Or is there any kind of like, you know, hacks where it's like, if you use one right after the other, do you want to leave time in between different sessions? What do you think is the best way to go about that? So the way, that's a great question. Uh, first off, the way that those vibration 
patterns in the Apollo app are labeled is a guideline based on the way that most people in our studies respond to Apollo. So the setting, there's seven modes and those modes start at the highest energy level, which is energy and wake up, which is actually very much boosting of energy and wakefulness. And it will is actually the only mode that is meant to increase your heart rate a little bit to get you going. Um, it's kind of like a shot of espresso. And so there's, that's the highest, highest energy mode. And then down from there is social and open then, which is like for socializing, particularly when you're tired, public speaking, uh, and creative work, then there's clear and focused, which is for deep, intense, um, you know, mental work and, and deep focus, kind of like, uh, Adderall or amphetamines. Then down from there is rebuild and recover, which is post-workout or post any intense stress. It rapidly calms the heart, restores the heart rate. Uh, to baseline and reduces blood pressure um, and helps reduce breathing patterns back to a normal resting state more quickly um, and boost HRV. Then we have meditation and mindfulness, getting into the much more calming patterns, which is great for meditation and mindfulness, but it's also great for aches and pains. Um, it's great for uh, just feeling like you're in a calm flow state. Uh, and then down from that is relax and unwind, which is for, you know, really deep relaxation or winding down after a really long work day, uh, preparing for bed. And then there's sleep and renew, which is what most people use when they get into bed or when they wake up in the middle of the night and they want to be asleep. Um, so there are some combinations that you can use again, you know, most of them just for sake of time, you can find on our website, apolloneuro.com and our article, how to get the most out of your Apollo. And you can just Google how to get the most out of your Apollo and it will pop up. Um, that probably is the first link, but I think the, uh, short answer tips are that I usually wake up with, uh, clear and focused for a gentle wake up in the morning because energy and wake up is a little too stimulating for me. Uh, sometimes if I'm really, really sleepy, I'll turn on energy and wake up for a little extra boost. Um, then I use clear and focused or social and open mode throughout the day, mm. depending on how much intense deep work I have to do versus social engagements and interviews and video chats and that kind of thing. Um, and then at the end of the day, basically I'm on social, social and open mode until to transition me out of work mode and into sort of wind, you know, winding down and hanging out with my family, uh, with my wife, um, or with my relatives or friends. And then in the evening, I think the most common, uh, and most effective way to help people get reliable sleep is the relax and unwind when you're getting ready for bed in that hour before bed, turn on relax and unwind. And then when you get into bed, turn on sleep and renew. And that pattern of using it for about three plus hours a day with some variation of those, those patterns, uh, those modes is what gives people the most significant results in the long run and the short run, because it helps the body maintain a recovery state as much as possible, as often as possible. And then over time, as people use it, you end up using it for more short bursts rather than continuously throughout the day. But um, you can't use it too much. It can't hurt you. The main recommendation that we I'll give you that we give on the website as well is just start with the intensity low because it's music and it's music for the skin. You wouldn't start with your, you wouldn't start listening to music on your stereo with it turned up to max. So treat your skin the same way. Start low where you can just barely feel the vibration and then gradually increase it as you feel you need it. Um, but start low because Low, tense, uh, low and slow is the goal to getting the best benefits out of the technology.
you want to be present. You don't want it to be distracting. Presentness is the key to flow. And is there any issue specifically with the, with the sleep mode, wearing it in bed with like EMFs or, you know, any kind of, you know, disturbances bioelectrically? Uh, I mean, so, so we did, it's a, it's a good question. We did build in, uh, because we were aware of many people who had EMF sensitivity, um, when we were building the first version of the technology, which is the version that's currently available. So we actually built in an airplane mode in the, in the software. So if you go to the app and click on your device at the top of the screen on the main screen, uh, there'll be a little button that says airplane mode. And you can just click that and that will turn off all communications from the device to the phone or from the phone to the device. So you can do that anytime, day or night, if you're sensitive to EMF. Um, and there will be absolutely zero electrical signals sent between or radio signals sent between the device and the phone and the phone and the device. Um, if you plug it back into the charger, it will turn airplane mode off again. Um, and that is the way that most people who are EMF sensitive use Apollo. And you could still use Apollo when it's in airplane mode by activating it with the buttons on the device itself. Right. That's that. Yeah. Cause that, that was always a big concern of mine. And I know, uh, you know, especially in this community, a lot of people are very conscious about EMFs and that sort of thing. So that that's actually a really, really strong feature. Now yeah, it's really important. I think yeah. for, for everyone. Particularly if we're going to be, it's going to be something you want, you know, people should want to wear a lot of the time. Ideally, there should be a mode that turns off the electrical, you know, the electrical and radio transmissions if somebody wants to. Uh, but the way the waves of vibration that Apollo sends to the body are, are literally sound waves. So mm. they're not radio waves. They're not, uh, they're not electrical impulses. They are sound waves. And the same sound waves that you hear through listening to this interview they're only lower, lower frequency. So they're developed at a sound frequency range that is optimized for our skin receptors rather than for our ears. That's so cool. Well, Dr. Dave, I, I really appreciate your time. This has been such an interesting interview. I wish we could talk a little bit longer because I would love to dive into more of your, you know, pick your brain a little bit more on some of these, uh, on some of these neurological topics and talk a little bit more about the Apollo, but uh, I will put a link to the, uh, to the Apollo website and check out some of those blog articles on how to best use the Apollo. Uh, and you have such great information on there and, on how the, uh, how the Apollo works biologically and, um, and where you can buy it. And uh, actually, if you go through my link, you can get a 10% discount on the Apollo. So uh, I highly recommend anybody interested in this device. Uh, definitely check that out. Check out the notes. It will all be there. Um, Dr. Dave, again, really appreciate your time. If anybody wanted to keep up with you, check out your personal information, check out on social media, where would you recommend people go? Uh, well, first off, thanks so much for having me. Happy to do it again sometime if you want. Uh, this was great. And um, if people want to find me, you can find, I'm always happy to hear from you. Please reach out at on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin or on Twitter at uh, Dave Rabin. And you can also find me on clubhouse at Dr. Dave Rabin. Uh, and those are probably the three best places to reach me. And if you're interested in just learning more about me and the work that I'm doing, uh, you can check out my personal website, which is Apollo.clinic or drdave.io. Fantastic. 
And like I said, I'll put all of that in our show notes when we release this and everybody will have uh, that information to be able to keep up with you. And like I said, you're doing amazing work right now. It's work that I believe uh, is so very much needed in the world right now, um, especially for younger generations. So uh, thank you so much for your dedication to the hard work, Dr. Dave. And uh, I really hope uh, to catch up with you again on another podcast sometime. Likewise. My pleasure. Thanks again. And- Fantastic. And listener, viewer, thank you so much for tuning into the, this episode of the Holistic Nootropics podcast. For more, be sure to check out holisticnootropics.com and the show notes to this podcast specifically, or check out the other podcasts that we have featured on the channel. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.